0: Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am back on the Beyond Solitaire podcast with Jonathan Truitt. He was my guest last week, but we're also having a separate conversation. Uh, so last week, we talked about gaming in colonial Mexico and his capacity as professor of Latin American history. But Professor Truitt is also director of the Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations at Central Michigan University. So first, how are you doing, Jonathan?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks. Long time no see.
0: Indeed, indeed. And uh, tell us a bit about this center.
1: So the center started out as a grassroots effort by faculty who were looking at ways to engage with games and game-based learning in their own classroom. And so we started out as a motley crew, just sort of trying stuff out with our students because doing sort of your standard approach to lecture, small group discussions, well, it worked at times, wasn't working for everything. And we wanted something more engaging that would get the students Sort of a little bit more intrinsic motivation in their learning. And so uh, we really just started playing with learning um, and using game mechanics to to get there. The center grew over time, so it started about nine years ago. It's been under a couple of different names until finally this one uh, is the one that stuck. And it's grown. It's grown quite a bit. So it went from a focus on, I mean, we joke there's a place in Mount Pleasant, Michigan called The Cabin, it's a bar just off campus uh, where you can get pretty good pizza and we would go there and meet and we'd, you know, have drinks, eat pizza, play board games and talk about me- game mechanics for our classroom. And it, it's grown from that where we had more faculty come in, more faculty were interested. We started um, we started the process of the Reacting to the Past Game Development Conference. Uh, so that started at Central Michigan University and it started some of these conversations around game-based learning more. We then, um, we led that conference for a few years. We've been done a couple of other regional ones, uh, where we've pulled in other nearby universities, Ferris state, um, grand, or grand Valley, uh, Delta second Valley state, um, to really talk about game-based learning. We pulled in, um, other game-based learners, uh, out there as well to lead workshops for us. And then in the process, we started developing our own games and building our own games. And, uh, We had people who, it it shocked us at first, but we had people who wanted to play our games and use our games. And so then we started looking for outlets for those games. Um, And that uh, led from one thing to another. We had a series of conversations with sort of traditional academic presses. Those academic presses, some of them were interested. Um, There's an interesting story to be told there, but it's it's long-winded and not terribly as interesting as I might think it is. So uh, the long story short is those academic presses weren't weren't excited about having to handle the the, the game pieces of the games, as opposed to the content and the pedagogy, uh, and so inevitably uh, the last one we were in conversation with sort of went pear shaped when COVID kicked off, and so we are launch well not even are we we have launched. Um, our own academic press on board games, and what it is is for peer reviewing board games. So, right within the academic community, uh, peer review is a big thing for um, scientific study, is in in any field, be it the humanities, social sciences, uh, and so we acknowledge as a part of this that faculty who are publishing in a in a board game space need peer review. In order for it to count for promotion and tenure, but also peer review uh, in terms of games, if they're going out and they're scholarly games, you'll know that playing one of our games, if you enjoy it and you're learning something from that game, you also know that that game has then been vetted, right? You have that information. It's been vetted by experts in that area. A lot of people may be falling asleep already on your podcast. I apologize for that. But uh, it's, it's also exciting to be able to learn and sort of pick up those games and know that the content that you're getting along with those game mechanics are there. So, uh, yeah, we started this process and we're now, we're now launching it. we've got a couple of different games that are coming out and we're excited. So that's the center's doing that and continuing to build, uh, internally at central Michigan university. We create courses on our university program that use game-based learning. We have a game design thinking minor that's going to be starting. It was just approved. So we're excited about that too.
0: Oh, man, that's so cool. Because I look back at my own educational years, you know, and learning through play was not a thing when I was in college. And it was not a thing when I was in graduate school. And really, I can't remember playing that many games in high school, to be to be totally honest, other than the ones that I played after finishing my work with all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> and so what has been changing in the educational landscape? Where, how, how, How have we gotten to the point where learning through games is cool now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. It's a fascinating sort of thought and conversation because like you, I didn't I didn't have a lot of game exposure in a classroom setting other than perhaps like I had some really amazing language teachers uh, who would have us play games to sort of reinforce what we were doing and sort of talking about there. But it's not new. Um, Oddly enough, even though we think of it as new, uh, if we start dropping back, I mean, I don't know about you in elementary school, I was in the era of Oregon Trail. Uh, and so we played a lot of Oregon Trail.
0: Um, oh, yeah.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> but there's also, um, as you go back, I mean, you jump back and Mark Carnes, who's the, the founder of Reacting to the Past, has done a book called Minds on Fire that really sort of tracks a lot of this. Um, people have used games uh, in various different ways throughout history, all the way back to Plato. Uh, and Plato talks about the benefit of games in in teaching children Um, but at a certain point we sort of look at it and like somewhere around middle school we start deciding that kids need to be adults and need to stop playing Um, but we learn best through play and so i think right as we enter into the early 2000s um there's the initial excitement over games especially video games as like learning tools has sort of died down and like there's this series of really just Terrible games that are created um, that aren't really games. They're really just here, do math, um, and you'll like it because when you do it, you get to go pew, pew, and shoot at things, right? And really, they're terrible games. Um, but people have stopped and taken stock and start looking at the way in which game mechanics can foster learning and foster engagement. Um, and I think that grows. And especially um, when I first started teaching, it was 2009. Um, and it was a mixed bag of the response, right? So I had some faculty members who were really excited about what I was doing and were really supportive. And I had other colleagues that were resistant to what I was doing and really questioned it. And both were good, right? Because it was something new. We're dealing with education. Uh, we're dealing with pedagogy and we, right, we're in a field where you have to demonstrate success. Right. And so it was new enough that A lot of assessment hadn't been done, but a lot of assessment has now been done over the past decade as people are using games and doing more with games. Uh, And so I think it's really started to take off. It's not everywhere, but it's grown. Um, And so that's, you know, if I had to say, I I really think this last decade has been sort of a sweet spot for it, um, both in terms of. As analog games as well as video games, right? Um, but I'm I'm in a space for analog games specifically.
0: That's awesome. The other thing that's so interesting about what you're doing is that you know I have never seen in my entire life a game out in the wild that I would feel c- totally comfortable referring to as scholarship. I think the possible exception to that would be maybe Pax Premier second edition. But, you know, even looking at something like, um, you know, even Falling Sky, which is a coin game about the Gallic revolt against Caesar, you know, the game is very good, but it is done as a hobby and as a labor of love, you know, Valko Rinke made it with his son when his son was in high school. It doesn't claim to be scholarship in the sense of, I should get tenure because I made this game. And that's something that I don't typically see in board games. So how, I mean, do you think academia is ready to accept board games as publications? And how are we going to get everybody there?
1: (laughs) Um, I think that's going to be a mixed answer. Uh, The answer right now is people who are, so A, Central Michigan University Press is a very small nascent press. Up until this point, the only thing is published uh, is a Michigan Historical Review. Uh, so it's it's a new endeavor there, right? We're not we're not Oxford University Press. We're not something where you're going to get big kudos for your your publication and get a huge jump of prestige at a top flight university. So it's, I just want to be honest about that, right? But um, we are peer reviewing, right? So they're double blind peer reviews that go out. We have a game right now that's out for peer review. Uh, and the authors don't know who the reviewers are, and the reviewers don't know who the author is. And it's that important process of checking the information. And in this case, we're also checking um, the mechanics to make sure that it works in the classroom. So um, we're following academic standards uh, with the press. So I think that, that in and of itself is going to help with that question for tenure. I think there are going to be departments where um, colleagues who publish with the series are still going to have to validate it. And we're going to write letters and we're going to have people both in industry because we're using uh, for our reviewers. We're using content specialists who really know the content, but not all of the content specialists out there are gamers. And uh, so we're using sort of content specialists to make sure the content's on target and we're using game designers in the field to make sure that the game mechanics are sound and engaging because we want to make high quality engaging games I'm not necessarily going to say fun um because there are certain games out there that are really engaging but i wouldn't they're not games where i'm like "Ooh, i want to play that over and over again but they're really important games right so one that comes to mind for me is this war of mine really well done game right i've played through it i don't need to play through it multiple times right um So, uh, or, um, I really like freedom underground railroad. Like it was important, but man, it, it also made painful decisions and, you know, I, am not going to, it's not going to be one that hits my table. a Um, and so these are games that are going to be good. They're going to be engaging. Some of them are going to be, they're going to be a blast and some of them are going to make you think a lot. Um, and so we're going to write letters. We're going to have letters from other people to support that. Um, our, my home department is at the point where they're accepting of my publication of games. Um, other colleagues who are doing reacting to the past games are also having those accepted in their home departments. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's going to be a push. And I think the only way we get there for academia to be ready for this is, is to do it, right? Um, and so I think... Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle for some colleagues, and we're going to do everything we can to support them. But I think there are programs and departments that are ready for it and are going to support it. And um, having this behind it gives it that much more in terms of credential.
0: That's awesome. I personally am really excited about this project. I think it's great. Um, But just from your perspective, how do you think that games can contribute to scholarship in a way that our more traditional system of write articles, write a book, can't. What can games give us that we're not already able to do in print?
1: So games require a different way of thinking and laying out the material than writing a book does, right? So I've written a book now and I've written a game. I've written a couple of games. One that's gotten published and the other one that's sort of sitting on the shelf. Um, But when you have to think about game mechanics, you have to think about the way in which you're relaying the information. Uh, And sometimes when you're writing a game, because of the game mechanics that develop, you find a hole that you didn't know necessarily existed before. So um, the game that I have this published uh, with W.W. Norton, Reacting to the Past, is Mexico and Revolution. Um, And there's a currency mechanic in the game. And I realized I needed a character to help control that currency mechanic, Uh, and the obvious character is the Secretary of Hacienda. Uh, And but the Secretary of Hacienda during this period um, is a guy by the name of Ernesto Madero, who is the uncle of then President Francisco Madero. Um, And I needed information on Ernesto Madero, but. Nobody's written on Ernesto Madero. He's just not somebody that a lot of people look at from the period and say, wow, we need him. I mean, this is a period that has Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and Victoriano Huerta. And it has um, Emilio Robles, who is um, this amazing figure that, uh, well, I'm I'm not actually going to say what Emilio Robles does, because if a student of mine watches this and then plays the game, they're going to know some secrets, Uh, right? But there's all of these really exciting characters and Ernesto Madero is in the background handling the finances of the of a country at war with itself and trying to keep it stable right so nobody's like "Ooh, look at that financier he's just so amazing but we needed the information on him and so doing the research into the game and because I needed the character forced us to write a biography on him um using the primary sources because there were no secondary sources on Ernesto Madero so that led to research that we hadn't anticipated doing, um, in terms of character development. Um, but there's also just that delivery, right? So games, as you mentioned, like seeing a game out in the wild that, that you play and you get to learn from what I'm excited about this. Whenever you pick up a game, you're, you're learning about that game, right? You're, you're learning the mechanics. Even I talked to my students about this. even really simple games reinforce learning, right? You're counting, you're reading, you're taking turns, you're right, you're communicating. But in this case, um, these are concepts that people are unfamiliar with, uh, or that they need to learn about. And so the game teaches you about that in a way that reading a book, you can try and go through that thought process, but you now you can sort of step out of that book, and you can apply it, right? And that process of applying knowledge helps you remember it even better than if you're reading through it um, and then trying to apply that process right um i know um i learned about angles i had a teacher who taught math uh obviously i had a math teacher there we go uh and his way of teaching sort of about angles and like he he used billiards right and i i learned that was one of the like lessons of math i'm not strong at math at all but that was one of the things i just like remembered and can still talk about with my kids and like um whereas other conversations you know where you know my son's really excited about pi and he's like i can do pi to the you know and he can do various different theorems and he's he's in sixth grade doing eighth grade math and I'm like lost and can't help him at this point. My wife helps him because she's a math genius in our family. And I'm like, I can teach you about Latin American history. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But having a game that does that would have helped cement it. Right. And it was games that helped me in that learning process. And so that's, that's where I think games are going to help is scholarship and teaching people, but it's also, um, that process of needing to know the material gets us to look for additional information that we
0: aren't looking for.
1: Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I really like the idea of gaming kind of making you put things out there in a practical way. You have to actually make a system that works, which means you have to actually understand the system and the components, which might actually, yeah, lead to finding holes in your knowledge. The flip side of that that interests me a lot though is that when you're making a game, you also have to cut things that you know. I mean, nobody can get all the context of. I mean, you should never read one book about history and think you know the context. So part of scholarship is is a wide, you know, variety of access to to sources. But what I wonder about with games as scholarship, right, is that when you're making an argument, you know, normally you have counter arguments, you have a lit review, and you have this kind of contextualization of where what you're saying fits into scholarship so far with a game really the goal is to streamline and get it to where somebody can have an experience that communicates your point but that also means that you as the designer are choosing what to include what to cut and what to focus on it's a really different way of having an argument do you how do you peer review that you know how can a game ever be scholarship in that way do you have to relegate gaming to just intro stuff you know, how deep do you think you can go with a, with a game-based argument about how something worked in the past?
1: So I think it's going to in part depend on the intentions of the author of the game, right? So as you write a book, as you develop a game, you have a target audience, right? Um, Is your target audience specialists in the field? Is your target audience um, people in higher level courses, in lower level courses? Uh, What, what's your target? So that's, that's going to be part of the the influence and you're absolutely right in the like thinking about the literature review and that area in that like in this case you don't you don't necessarily have the lit review portion of it um though we are like depending on sort of the the topic that's being covered we're encouraging sort of like bibliographies and like areas to find more information and counter arguments but we're also doing double blind peer reviews in this process so Again, um, the authors don't know who's doing the review of the game mechanics, and they don't know who's doing the review of their content, right? But they're going to get that feedback. Uh, and when they get that feedback, we as the the publishers of this have, have conversations with them about that content. So that conversation, right? You can't just go at it um, and just be like, this is going to be my perspective. And you can't ignore the rest of the field because you're still getting peer reviewers in your field who are going to bring in some of that content and they're going to raise some of those questions that you then need to figure out how to wrestle with. But yeah, I mean when you're developing a game there's always a tension point between the mechanics and the content and how do you how do you get the game to continue to flow and have the content in there. And Each of those is going to be a different approach. Um, What we're committed to doing is making sure that it's clear in those game mechanics. If we're having to make a choice of game mechanic over content for some reason. So I mentioned my Mexico and Revolution game. It's a role-playing game for the students. And one of the things that I had to consciously decide to do was that I needed all of these characters who were never in the same place at the same time because they would have just killed each other. They're in the same place at the same time, right? And so it's one of those things where it's very, it's clearly stated in the game book, this part of this gathering never happened because they would have killed each other. But we're interested in the ideas that all of them have and we need them to present those ideas to the students in that classroom space. And in order to get those ideas there in such a way that the students can learn the material, right? We had to make we had to make this happen, and so we're very clear. Like if we both, when we do something like that, and the reason for doing that um, in that change, because we don't we don't want to hide anything. Um, because again, this is an educational process, but we also believe that um, the accuracy of the game and good game mechanics, like, isn't something where you have to give up one over the other. Um, sometimes you just have to play with it more to get it there um and again it comes so going back to your initial question about um, literature review and sort of contextualizing stuff um just as you read a book and you might have the literature review at the beginning of it if you get interested in the topic you go on to read more and hopefully uh in the process of playing the game it's not it's not your first stop uh, or it's not it may be your first stop i should say But hopefully it's not your last, right? right? Hopefully you enter into it and you're like, this is really interesting. I want to know more. And it's the springboard into that more.
0: Interesting. So this is a very academic thing to talk about. Sorry, board game listeners. Uh, But the thing I always think about, too, is that, you know, I, I thought about going in academia and decided not to ultimately. But one of the reasons for that is I really like being the person who is the first stop. I like writing introductory level work for my students, and I think that a lot of times scholarship is very much about well, how high can you go? How small an audience can you talk to? Are you noticing any inherent difficulties? And you know, there's also I think still too little emphasis on teaching mm-hmm. and excellence in teaching at the university level. So, do you expect pushback in that sense as well? As you know, there's it's it's games. But then there's also, this is for new people. This isn't you showing off the heights intellectually to which you can fly. Except yeah. I would say that it is because making games is freaking hard.
1: <laughs> Agreed. Um, so it there is a little bit of pushback. I mean, one of the things that we have to continually convince people is that the scholarship of teaching and learning is just as valid. Um, so in my case, scholarship of teaching and learning is just as valid as doing a historical monograph on colonial Mexico. Right. And there's going to be a different audience and a different reach. Uh, and people are coming around to it. I honestly think part of the reason why people are coming around to it is there is such an enrollment crunch happening in uh, higher ed right now. that one of the things that people are terrified about are declining enrollments. And so, how do you recruit students? But then, once you have students there, how do you retain uh, the students that you have? And if there's something that game based learning has repeatedly shown, uh, through reviews is that, um, you get students who are taking courses that are using games. And by this, I don't mean just doing like jeopardy review. I mean, using games over the course of your, uh, content. Um, it, they form friendship and acquaintance networks at a greater rate, uh, in those courses. And so it helps to retain students um, on a big level. And those students also help, ret- it, the games help them retain the information as well. So what we're having um, is this point where we desperately need students and games help engage them and make friendships and those friendships help them retain at the university. And so the universities, while they want, I mean, they obviously want cancer research and they want high level Research that's going to bring them a lot of flash, um, and that's important, right? Uh, I'm not minimizing that, but they're also acknowledging that there needs to be effort on the pedagogy and on the um, on the engagement, right? We we need the students to be there, um, and so I think at least that's what I've seen at my home institution is that there's more engagement with this um, because there's there's an acknowledgement that we we. Need students. (laughs) Right. I mean, not that we didn't need them before, but we we need them more now. And part of part of a student wanting to be there is they they want to learn. Um, and this is one of those ways of doing it. Learning should be fun, it shouldn't be a chore.
0: On that we agree. I mean, I like it to be really difficult and I like puzzles that make my brain melt, Mm -hmm. but that I don't want to be bored. Yeah. I really don't. I don't think anybody ever does. So you have one game that's going through this process right now. It's the Hydrologic Cycle game?
1: Yes. yes. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> you're better at pronouncing it than I am. I always trip over it and my colleagues mock me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it is almost out the door. Uh, we hit just a couple of internal red tape issues that are being cut at the moment. But that game uh, developed by Dr. Wendy Robertson. Dr. Robertson uh, created this game for a class. It's a two-player game. It's a board game. Uh, we're also going to be getting it to a position for her to use remotely with her students, but it's um, been in development for a while. There's It went out specifically tied into an academic article on the water cycle that is getting published sort of simultaneously. So um, that game is going to be available for purchase any week now, uh, once we get the red tape squared away. So that's just the final little bit that, that got there.
0: Oh, that's really, really cool. So I have a question about this game. I'm not a geologist by any stretch, but I am a teacher. Uh, My largest class right now is 32 students. Um, Are y'all you know, when you're, when you're helping people develop these games and you're designing them, is this something where you need to have multiple copies of a game to play for everybody in your so, classroom? Are we imagining publishing these kind of larger skill games that a bunch of people could play? Um, is that even, I mean, maybe it's just a needs, whatever you need, that's what you do. I'm just sort Yeah.
1: Of so we're sort of all over the place on this. Um, we in part acknowledge that it just depends on the topic that's being covered. And, um, the the broader need that's there right so yeah. uh the mexico in revolution game that i have works with between 14 and 35 students and there's a, there are rules for expanding it up and dropping it down if you need to um, there are other games that work for a smaller amount i've created some games that work with up to 120 students right so um but we also have smaller ones that work for specific purposes one of the challenges with creating a game and sort of that we're trying to figure out how to overcome, and so people who are listening to this, if you if you have advice on it, you know, please reach out. We'd love it. Is the the market right? So the way that academic books work is that I, as a professor of the class, assign a book, and then I have thirty five students buy that book, right? And so that funds the market, right? That's the racket, but it, it also funds the creation of scholarship and it it supports the publishers and all of those jobs. The problem with board games is if you have a if you have a game, like two-player game or four-player game, you can't tell half of your class that they have to buy that game and the other half doesn't. There's problem one. Uh, The other problem though is that if you as an instructor buy the game, the game is then done and how do you go from there, right? Uh because the market doesn't expand. So what we're hoping is that people will be interested in these games beyond academia. and so what that means in terms of you as an educator is we also acknowledge that educators spend way too much of their money, own money uh, on things. And we we want to do what we can to help. Here's where I'd love to say. And so we have grants. We don't yet. Um, if anybody out there has funding <laughs> and they want to provide a grant for us to do that, absolutely reach out. Let us know. Um, but so in this case, if you have um, 35 students, right, you're going to need roughly 18 copies of the game uh, which is way too many copies but we have a really cheap print and play option Um, so acknowledging that schools like you can just buy the downloadable pdf print it off and just chop it out and then you have all of those copies that you need Um, and then if you want a nicer copy you can buy the nicer copy Um, our hope is to, we're working on price point right now. Um, our games are print um, print on demand at the moment. We're working through Game Crafter, mm-hmm. in part. We're right budget crunches, everything like that. The university is excited about what we're doing, and we're moving forward. Um, but we don't have a storage facility at the moment, so ordering a large quantity of them and then mailing them out um, isn't at the moment uh, a possible thing. Uh, but we're getting around those hiccups as we go to, but our, our initial plan is really to try and help people out. The other thing is, is if you're an academic, if you're an academic or if you're a high school teacher and you're interested interested in the game uh, and just don't have the funds, um, reach out to us and we'll see what we can do to to help.
0: That's awesome. I also wonder, so I feel like a larger and larger number of libraries, public libraries have been carrying board games i would be Mm -hmm. very interested in a future where university libraries also purchase and carry board games because honestly i feel like that's where everybody who publishes their manuscript through brill they just get the libraries to buy it that's how the publisher survives because like i'm not paying a hundred and something dollars for like one manuscript yeah (laughs) but the library will but
1: So this is a conversation we've had with our library um, about board games. We actually have um, the Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. We have a board game library ourselves that isn't connected into our larger library. It's just part of our center. And if you're a part of our, if you're affiliated with our center, we have a pretty weak tracking policy. If you just go in and you write your name down on the tablet of paper and you take the game and, you know, it's on the honor system. Um, Our library uh, we're working with them to possibly catalog these and do some other work with them. Um, one of the challenges, though, is as it enters a library system, the students get the games and games have pieces. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's one of the fun thing about games, but you start losing those pieces. Uh, and there's a challenge now. Public libraries are overcoming this. And so I think it's a place where we can learn from them. But right now, the games in our collection are research tools for mechanics. And so um, as a director, I'm a little afraid of losing those research tools uh, and just have to have to have the bandwidth to figure out how to do that uh, well. But I think it's um, I think it's a space that it's going to happen, especially as we have these. These games we have, um, if students want to do review for an exam or something like that, we need to have the games in a space where they can just easily get them to do that.
0: Right. I have one other accessibility question, which is, is your press going to have any policies about rule complexity? Because this is the other thing I wonder about, especially because I teach large classes, right? Like Even if you have enough copies of the game for everyone to play, teaching a game is also a skill in itself uh, especially if you're playing you know the games that I've played that are the most scholarly are often also the most complex you know in my gaming life so far and I uh, I wonder about that you know how do you make it about learning the material and not learning how to play a complicated game like you have to balance that in a classroom whereas a hobbyist wants to play the game um, are y'all is that part of your peer review process? Is it just we're seeing what happens and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it when we get there? What's the...
1: <laughs> A little bit of it is we'll, we'll deal with it when we get there, but it's not quite there. Again, it's going to be the aim and the target of the game, right? So we're not mm-hmm. going to be publishing. We're not suddenly going to have 15 games next year, right? Uh, if right. we're lucky, by 2021, we'll have three games. Um, the complexity is an issue um and timing because right you have to if you're adopting a game into a classroom you need to um spend the time teaching the game and when you spend the time teaching the game it takes away from time teaching the content right uh and so that's that is a a very real concern so with the hydrologic game or hydrologic cycle game uh we have a how to play video that is being produced by Dr. Robertson and another colleague Dr. Kluver that people will be able to play. And so you can assign that to the students to look at before they come to class. Uh, now I also acknowledge that not all students will do that. Um, and so they'll come into class unprepared. And then how do you do that with the game? But there is, um, as we look at the games, teaching materials and associated sort of classroom instructions is a part of our game. So, um, It's not going to be like, I mean, again, you mentioned coin games, which are fantastic, but it's not going to be one of those where you're getting the game and you're trying to figure out, now, how do I use this in the classroom? There's going to be a set of instructions and guidelines to help you know how to bring that game into the classroom, right? Um, But, you know, I, even though I'm an educator, sometimes I suck at teaching the rules to a game. Uh, And I have a friend who's just amazing at it. Like every time we play a game together, like he's the one who teaches the rules because he's just got a knack for teaching those. Right. So I'm not going to say it's going to be a 100% slam dunk every time a new instructor is trying to teach the rules. Um, But uh, the center is going to be there to help uh, if people have those questions. Um, And each time you teach the rules, it gets a little bit faster. Our goal though, is that these games are going to work in, in a classroom. And so we're thinking about that and we're, keeping that in mind as we develop it out. And so there's both going to the complexity issue. um, In some cases, what it will be is that game is just gonna be a really easy game to introduce. So I have a game um, that uh, it's a card game called Plagues, Poxes and Pustules. It looks at rapid demographic collapse due to disease. Um, It's not published yet, uh, but it plays in 20 minutes. Right. And that's, and it takes two minutes to explain the rules. It's a co op game uh, where you're in a medieval village and Black Death has descended on you. It's a little surreal to play in the moment. Uh, But um, (laughs) that game plays out in 20 minutes and it's just a quick, simple here you go. Um, Dr. Robertson's game uh, on the hydrologic cycle um, plays in a class period. Right. And then we have games that are sort of larger, right? So I mentioned my Mexican Revolution game that plays out over anywhere from basically one to eight class periods. Mm -hmm. Um, And the rules on that one are much more complex because it's a large role-playing game that goes over days. But I also acknowledge that people who are jumping to it for the first time might be intimidated by that. So we have a two sheet, so two page. This is your first time using the game. Here's how you strip out a bunch of the rules and just run it more easily. And then you can ramp up that complexity as you become more comfortable with the game. Right. So we're going to have introductory stuff because not everybody teaches using games. And we want to make sure that these games are comfortable for people who are both gamers and are excited about having games. And so we want the complexity there for them. And if they're comfortable teaching it at a more complex level, awesome. But we also want it to be there for the non-gamers.
0: So to what extent are y'all cross-pollinating with war gamers who already do a lot of research to create these kind of professional level gaming simulations that are designed to teach something uh, or with uh, people who are creating hobbies to historical games? Are y'all planning on dialogue? I mean, obviously, you're a hobbyist gamer yourself, but what, what to what extent is there crossover at this point?
1: So we're pretty new in the process um but it's crossover that we're looking at. Um we right so we're an academic series our main focus is on creating games that will help people secure their jobs and get promotion and tenure. Well I shouldn't say that's our main focus, but as we look at it right our main focus is in creating academic and scholarly games uh which helps people get tenure and promotion. Um but that being said our we're open to accepting games from people from any space, just like any other publisher would be. We're hoping that our games are going to be interesting enough that um, other spaces, right? So the um, historical war gamer is going to be interested in some of our games or people who are interested in science games, right? Because hydrologic cycle, not, not a historical war gamer kind of game, but hopefully it's something that people who are interested in learning about um, science is going to be interested in. So we're hoping that will go out. We're hoping that um, we'll have people in those areas who are interested in really creating a scholarly game come to us. So we're partnering with the Zenobia Awards. Uh, We're one of the presses on the Zenobia Awards. So that's that's one space where we're cross-pollinating. We, In the process of game review, um, we're grabbing game designers to help us with game mechanic review who are in... Uh, the spaces you just mentioned, right? Um, so it's right double blind. So I'm not going to mention people that we're pulling, but there there are people in the space who are uh, reviewing games for us that are coming out of the hobby game market and are reviewing game mechanics for us um, in that space. So we have some cross pollination there, um, and then we're looking at partnering with some um, hobby uh, game companies, right? Who are in the industry, and so. Uh, obviously they're going to have a different set of concerns about the games that are coming out than we do. Um, but we're looking at partnering in to sort of get into that space. And then I guess, finally, we're, we're present at Gen Con. Um, the, so some of our, I mean, I guess I should say some of our designers that are a part of the center not necessarily a part of the publication process um, have published in um, hobby spaces. So um I was talking to you earlier, but um, the Rainy City game that came out by Rich Forest, Andrew Davinis behind it. It's um, superhero necromancer games. Uh, they're faculty with us. Uh, and they ran the Rainy City, Rich Forest, ran it, uh, remotely for Gen Con last year. Um, I ran my Mexico and Revolution game remotely for Gen Con. Uh, we're hoping to do the hydrologic cycle game uh, once we can be back in person. We won't be in person this year. Not Gen Con's happening in person, but in September... Um, September is a terrible time for academics uh, to get there. I don't blame Gen Con. This is a terrible situation. Uh, it's just hard for us to be in person when we have to be teaching classes. Um, so we're in that space as well. And we're looking to be in in other spaces and having those those conversations. One of the premises behind the center since it started is that um, good games are really important to us. And part of the way to get good games is to have dialogue with the good games that are out there and i mean this is a golden age of board games it's amazing there's so many good games so many times and so we're all of us are playing those games and thinking about them as we develop
0: amazing and so i know that you are you don't want to talk maybe too much are there any other games in the pipeline that you can disclose to us at this time
1: yeah so um the next one coming out we're we're working on the title of it so i'm gonna um we're going back and forth, but it's a pretty cool historical game. Um, historical light, I say in this case, because it's, it's modeling um, situations that have occurred, but is not based specifically on that situation. Um, and what it looks I like um, is you are a small community in world war two Europe. Uh, your town has had uh, enemy forces take over your medieval church. And the question you have to ask as a group is do you storm the church and lose members of your community because, but save the art and the monuments uh, that are associated with your community for hundreds of years, or um, do you just blow up the church and save lives, but lose all of that historical memory, right? All of those artifacts, And so it's a game that plays with larger classrooms, but it's also one that we're hoping sort of like you get together and play like how to host a, you know, let's host a murder mystery or, um, you know, something along. You do an escape room. This is an experience where you can get together and you can have this conversation and you sort of work through these. What are really real questions? Um, So that one. We've been hoping for a release in June. It's probably going to be more like an August release. Uh, the author behind that is Mary Beth Looney. Um, it's been used in a number of classrooms um, already with uh people in the Reacting to the Past community. Um so we're just working on a new
0: title for it and um
1: getting some of the logistics worked out.
0: That's awesome. And um I'm gonna put it in the show notes, but where can we find you online? Where can we Google?
1: Yes. So if you Google um, Central Michigan University Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations, uh, you can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, we might even be on uh, Instagram. I believe we're there. Um, I should really know this. I realize, but I'm I'm not on Instagram. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's where you find us. And we'll be, you know, hopefully showing up at more game shows too, so or conventions. So right, Gen Con already. Hopefully more to come.
0: Yes, come to PAXEU. That's my favorite one. So. That would be awesome. <laughs> Thank you again so much for coming on, for telling us about all this cool stuff that you're up to. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, Liz.
0: I appreciate it. All right, everybody who's watching, listening, leave us some comments. And uh, happy gaming, everybody.
1: Happy gaming.